Hello, hello, hello. I am your host, Connie Aline, and thank you for tuning in to The Fly Behind the Wall, a podcast created to change the narrative about the realities of life in the United States prisons and jails. My goal is to highlight the challenges faced by all correctional staffers working behind the wall and the issues that they navigate in a highly political and scrutinized environment. Welcome to the Fly Behind the Wall, and thank you so much for joining me again. Today, we will explore the leader as the advocate. Back in 2008, I had done a show on advocating behind the wall, but that's quite different as different from the leader being the advocate. I do hope that my reflections and my insights will help to broaden your understanding of correctional life for employees and offenders. Stay tuned. The leader as the advocate is such a personal topic. And the reason why I say personal is because I was the leader who had to advocate, right? And that's advocacy on so many different levels. So in the role that I held as an administrator, not only was I standing in the role as advocate in the facility, but I was also the advocate at central office. And then I was the advocate with custody and literally anything that went down, I ended up being the advocate for my staff. Uh, The challenge of course lies when your staff do things that they shouldn't be doing. And so that's when your role as advocate shifts and you have to be that person who comes in and provides the feedback and the discipline and everything else in that progressive disciplinary process. Um, Working in a unionized environment certainly has a different twist on how you can and cannot advocate, particularly because, you know, as administrators, we are part of that arbitration process. So if it gets to a point where there is some labor relations involvement, uh, the the administrator essentially is the manager. And so you cannot advocate. Um, But suffice it to say that, you know, staff are doing, they're in all areas of the facility. They could be on the walkway, having an exchange with custody. They could be in a group room, have an exchange with the offender population. They could have done something. I mean, you name it. The administrator has to serve as that advocate. Like something goes down, it is not on the administrator to jump to any conclusions. Custody may come to you and say, hey, Jane Doe was out doing X, Y, Z. As administrator, you kind of take the information. I'll look into it and I'll get back to you. You meet with Jane Doe. Hey, what's going on? Now, I think one of the things that I don't want to overlook is that it matters that you have a decent relationship, decent working relationship with your direct reports, Um, because then they may not be transparent. They may not tell you what really happened. 
I've had times where I have my team come in, hey, what happened? Listen, this is what happened, Connie. (laughs) You know, that's when I know like I'm getting the real deal. That way I'm not going out there with egg on my face because I am going to go toe to toe with custody if in fact they didn't do anything wrong or if in fact both parties involved created a situation. Now, I had a situation where, you know, one of my staff had a relationship with an officer. I mean, more than just a relationship, they got married and they were living together and said officer decided he was going to get involved with the newer, younger recruit who came on board, just disrespectful of his wife. Um, Long story short, they end up having an altercation outside of work. And, you know, of course it's, well, we're just going to remove the civilian staff because, you know, that officer has been working here. He's got seniority, blah, blah, blah. I could care less about that. I don't care what happened. I don't care that their marriage has gone awry. I care about the action that we're going to assume to take to the civilian because simply they're not as important. To me, that is just not showing objectivity as an administration. And so when the conversation first happened, I went into, first the the person came into me, they talked to me about what happened. And you know what? It, It was not for me to decide who was right or who was wrong, right? This is a wife who was emotional, who was upset. And, you know, she took action in the manner that she thought was appropriate for the situation. I won't judge that. However, I don't think custody should judge that either. The judge of that should be what was the actual um, outcome. So apparently there was an altercation. There uh, There was a summons served to the employee. Whichever employee that was, I could imagine then the action being taken against that person because of that. So just so that you know, when you are an employee of the Department of Corrections, you cannot have, um, well, if you have any interaction with law enforcement, like police, state troopers, whatever, you had a DUI, whatever has happened, you need to inform your facility administrator of that event. It's part of the administrative directive. It is an expectation, right? And so if in fact I get contacted by the local police department, but you haven't contacted me, you are in violation of said directive, right? So in this event, there was a summons issued. As a matter of fact, all three employees, the two officers and the civilian were all, they all three had involvement with law enforcement that night. And long story short, It was not okay to just say remove the one civilian because there were two officers involved and the two officers being removed would have created an overtime issue and a staffing issue on the custody side. And then even though it would have created a staffing issue on the civilian side, we are civilians in their house. So we kind of just got to roll with it. And I just, that just didn't sit well with me. So 
when the decision was initially made, I made sure that I went and sat with the warden so that I understood what was the driver behind the decision and that it was something that was objective, not in any way, shape or form were they taking sides or were they going to use my employee as a scapegoat. Now those can be tough discussions, but when you have a good relationship with administration, it's easier to navigate those discussions. It's easier to say, hey, you know what was really going on here. No one person should be held accountable for this. Here's the things that this employee is saying. Here's what the, the officer is saying, right? We weren't there, we can't take sides, but what's the fair thing to do? And really, what is the implication to the staff, to the facility, to the offender population in general? Right. So when you have situations that pull staff out of facilities, you know, you do tilt that inmate staff ratio. And sometimes it creates a a dangerous ingredient that you have way too few employees on site than you have offenders. And now this is a big issue just because prison overcrowding is a problem in general and understaffing is a problem in general. So when you start to pull from an already understaffed environment, it does create a dangerous safety and security situation. Now, the other side to that is that you don't want a workplace violence issue. And now some employees have already had a a negative interaction, but you're now allowing them all to come back to the same place we are essentially allowing for the creation of um, a hostile work environment, which we don't want to. So as a leader, you have to weigh the pros and cons of all these things that are now coming into play, right? And we do have an obligation to protect the employees as much as we have an obligation to protect the population. So ultimately, we made the decision that at least one person would be moved to another facility until the situation was investigated and a final determination was made. Now, though there weren't easy conversations, the dialogue happened. Oftentimes you find that, you know, many administrators are afraid to come forward and talk to custody and and advocate on behalf of their employees. Sometimes the loyalties lie in the wrong place. Sometimes, you know, you have people who are using their leadership role to advance their own careers. And so they don't want to rock the boat. They don't want to make it for an uncomfortable situation. But here's the thing. As a leader, you can have many crucial conversations without necessarily jeopardizing your future career ambitions. It's all about the way you communicate. It's all about the way you engage in a dialogue that is palatable. You can't want to go flying off the handle at anybody because one, it's not professional and two, it's not effective. You are getting nowhere with that sort of engagement. When you can come to other professionals, have a conversation and make your point known and be clear about your position, even if there's opposition presented, you can still have a healthy dialogue surrounding that. But when people are flying off the handle and I'm not gonna and you're taking these stands that you probably don't have a, a leg to stand on, like it just, it's just bad business. So advocating with administration is important. With the offender population, 
I had offenders who they were doctor shopping. They wanted to see the doctor who they knew were going to give them medication. And I wouldn't allow that to be. We would get inmate requests. You know, Miss Miss Aline, can you please take me off of Dr. So-and-so's caseload? I would meet with that offender. Why do you want to be removed from the caseload? What's going on? Because I want to understand, like, if there's something going on with the interaction, is there a point of training that needs to be addressed? Is there an issue with the offender? Is the physician possibly, you know, misreading the situation, misinterpret it? Is the physician following the standard of care of the community? Like those are the things that I'm looking at. Not that the offender who, I don't want to say who cares that the offender wrote a letter. Offenders are going to write because that's what they do. You look to see if there's any merit in anything that they're saying because you don't want the litigation to come two years down the line that the offender wrote to you, you ignored it, and then there was some outcome, some negative outcome for which there's a remedy going to be provided to this offender. You make sure you're proactive in that approach. So here it is, offenders bad mouthing my doctor, and I'm like, listen, this doctor has done this, 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 and that for you. You were presented at the interdisciplinary team meeting for this reason. The doctor wanted to make sure he he or she was not misinterpreting what you said, and so he reached out to his peers. And so when I had that conversation, with the offender, he was taken back because he thought like that was just it. And it wasn't, you know, it wasn't something that one, the doctor was okay letting it go because I think he could understand too. What are the long-term implications of the offender population starting to say that's a quack doctor, that's a sucky doctor. He knew. And so he also, there was some of that, let me cover my tail and make sure I'm doing the right things and that, you know, I've now got a jury of my peers that have said, so here are, here are all the different treatment options we could consider. And the doctor was right in the, in the realm of where his peers were. So he wasn't off. And this offender simply, simply wanted more medication, which he didn't need. It was not clinically warranted. So meeting with the offender and clearing things up with custody so that I don't have custody coming to my doctor saying, hey, doc, you got to give him something like it's relieving the pressure that my doctor is going to be feeling unnecessary pressure, no less from the population and from custody. Right. So tough conversations as a leader, you need to put yourself in the midst of those so that you can serve as the advocate for your staff. Now, central office can sometimes be a more difficult conversation, right? We were going through a point where staffing was a challenge and central office, oh, Connie, you got to cut down on overtime. We can't have them working all these hours, blah, 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 blah. You can function in this, in this unit with just one person. You could function in this unit with, and literally at a point we were at bare bones. If there was a code on the other side of the compound, it took forever for someone to go respond. It just was not safe the way they were expecting us to operate. 
And there were those conversations that I'm having with the director of nursing, that I'm having with the director of administrative services, saying, hey, listen, this is not working. I understand we have this budgetary constraint. I understand that we are looking at, you know, these overtime numbers. But our reality is that we've got backfills we haven't filled. We've got positions that have been redlined, like completely canceled. And how do we, in good faith, send these staff out there with this huge population of people without having adequate support and then not having any downtime. Because if in fact you start working at seven and you're still going at three and you still have notes to do and you still have report to give to the oncoming team, like it's not fair for us to do that. From a labor relations perspective, it's not acceptable. From a union perspective, it's not acceptable. And as an administrator, if you can't step up and advocate because you know all these things are wrong, and then you see the impact on morale, staff morale would take a nosedive. How do you work like that? Your central office isn't working with those people every day. They're not the ones who see that your team is working, working, working. They don't have time to go pee. Like that's how difficult it can be for many of the staff that are at work in these facilities. And so I just wanna increase the sensitivity to one, that civilian employees, they offer a tremendous amount of value to this institution. And two, we can't discount the voice. They have the same amount of sacrifice and commitment to their roles, to their jobs, to their colleagues, to the population. And unfortunately, they don't get this airtime. They don't get the support I think that they deserve. And part of this challenge of creating this space is civilians need to have a voice. They have a place in the environment and really their value is invaluable. Right? Um, so as you can see, this whole leader as the advocate is something I'm really passionate about. It is something that I feel that we don't talk about because it's just part of what we do. It's part of who we are as the leader. Right. We're not going to let anybody bash our people, even if we got the crappiest person. Like, I'd rather sit and talk with that crappy person and develop that person to get them to where we need them to be, as opposed to bash them, because it's that crappy person who's going to go above and beyond. It's that crappy person who's going to be able to see like, yo, this person really had my back when they didn't have to. I know I did crap work on that day. Many times they say it. They know. Right. So. The leader as the advocate is critical, especially in this environment where there is pressure coming from so many directions. So to all those leaders in corrections, all my civilians in corrections who are in leadership roles, I take my hat off to you. I say thank you. I know that especially now during COVID-19, it is very difficult to be leading in corrections and advocating in corrections. Please continue the fight, the good fight, and stay safe. No matter what David and Goliath situation you find yourself in, remember the words of Rosa Parks. You must never be fearful about what you're doing when it's right. 
I hope that I've given you enough to continue a healthy conversation about our correctional staffers and the issues that they navigate behind the wall. Thank you so much for listening as I continue to make my own slice of the world a little better. You have just listened to The Fly Behind the Wall, now available on iTunes, Anchor, Spotify, Breaker, CastBox, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Overcast, Pocket Cast, Radio Public, and Stitcher. Be sure to subscribe, share, and write a review. Join me next time, Behind the Wall. Thank you.